This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we bring in NetApp CTO Dr. Mark Bregman to deliver his predictions for IT. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi, Glenn Sizemore, and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi, and on the phone with me today is the um, awesome Glenn Sizemore. I couldn't think of another adjective. Sorry, I, oh, I, I'll I, take I, awesome, man. Awesome is fine. Uh, it's it's an it's an appropriate adjective. I didn't come up with one beforehand. I usually do, so we'll, we'll have to we'll have to work on that. <laughs> anyway, uh, Glenn, how you doing? Doing pretty good, man. Good, doing pretty good, excellent. Um, so we have some uh, a very special guest here today. Uh, we have the NetApp CTO, Mr. or I'm sorry, Doctor Mark Bregman. Uh, he is going to give us his CTO predictions um, today, we're, and we're going to talk a little bit about those and why he came up with them. Uh, hello, Mark. Hello. How are you? Doing great. Do Do you force people to call you Doctor? No, I don't. In fact, my daughter, who is a uh, surgical resident, insists that I'm not the right kind of doctor. Yeah, that'd be a little tricky if you had a daughter or son that was in medical school and you're you're yeah. pushing this doctor title here. All right, so um, so Mark came up with a list of CTO predictions because that's what that's what we do. You know, we we predict um, in this industry. So uh, we're gonna run through those, and Mark's gonna give us a little bit of uh, input about what he was thinking when he came up with these predictions and why he came up with that specific prediction uh, itself. Um, but before we do that, let's talk a little bit about what Mark does here at NetApp and how we can get in contact with Mark. Uh, on social media if he has an account. So, Mark, could you tell us a little bit about what you do and uh, your contact information? Sure. Um, so I uh, basically try to look at where the industry is headed, both from a uh, business point of view, in fact, what's affecting our customers, and obviously from a storage and technology point of view. And I try to help guide our product engineering teams beyond what's in their current roadmap. I mean, they mostly talk to customers and get feedback on what's needed in the current or next release, but it's looking out beyond that that's a little trickier. And so, in fact, these predictions really came from thinking about what are the big trends that are affecting our business, our customers, um, and and use those to frame our thinking about longer-term strategy. I'm reachable at uh, mark.bregman at netapp.com, and I'm also at sign Dr. Mark Bregman, Dr. Mark Bregman, on Twitter. Excellent. All right. So we'll go ahead and add that to the show notes uh, when we put up the blog. Great. All right. Um, so without further ado, let's jump right into prediction number one here. Um, and the prediction that we have here on the website, prediction number one, uh, data is the new currency. Uh, I thought that was Bitcoin. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because, um, you, you know, you probably heard that tagline. You might have heard about digitization of enterprises. Uh, almost every C-level uh, executive I talk to in almost every industry today is thinking about how to leverage data and information more effectively in their business. And so as we've talked about this internally and with our customers, we've come to the idea that, you know, in the digital economy, which we're moving towards, data is the new currency. If you think... Um, about banking, where real currency takes place, and you think back maybe 100 years ago or more to the days when people were coming out of the California hills with their little bag of gold, or 
their primary concern when they looked for a bank was to find a bank that had a really strong vault to store their gold because that was the primary concern about conserving things. Today, I, I would guess most of the people that are listening have bank accounts, but when they open that account, it's unlikely they visited the bank to study how good a vault they have. More likely is they looked at all of the services and capabilities that that bank could provide to help them manage their currency, their money. And in much the same way, I think we're seeing the storage industry extend beyond just storing data, storage, more and more into helping customers manage and exploit and utilize their data. And the reason is that data is really what's valuable, not storage. That's really what we mean by data as the new currency. If you think about most enterprises, no matter what industry they're in, have been for the last 40 years using data to run their business. We've built you know, ever more sophisticated systems, ERP, CRM. Today we're doing more and more data analytics, all aimed at improving how we operate our business. One thing that's happening today that's a big shift is for many businesses, they're moving beyond data to help run their business into data is becoming their business or a part of their business. So you look at examples like um, uh, companies that have used data to manage inventory and uh, maybe to improve marketing, they're now realizing that they can actually take that data, combine it, analyze it, and sell the resulting information to customers directly. The sort of apocryphal story, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm expecting any day now it will, is think about Tesla. Here's a company which is a car company, but a Tesla collects massive amounts of data, sends it back every minute, every day. And so Tesla knows more about my driving habits than I do. Today they use that to study the availability, reliability of their vehicle, the performance and of the fleet and so on, and presumably to engineer better product. But in the near future, I'm expecting an email from Elon Musk offering me you know, discounts on insurance because he's made a deal with an insurance company based on the knowledge of my driving record, they can get me a lower rate. That's an example of turning that data into really valuable business in its own right, not just using it to run the, the core business. Well, and, and that's what we mean by data is the new currency. Yeah, and in addition to that, I mean, if you're driving your Tesla and you pass a Starbucks every day, you get a little alert pop up like a minute before you reach your Starbucks, and it says, hey, we got a discount today at Starbucks, right? Exactly. So, and again, yeah. that's monetizing the data directly, not just using it to make a better car. I love the analogy that you let off uh, with there using the bank vault um, because, because it, it, the, the transition there is, is it's, it's almost too on the nose. <laughs> In, in, from my perspective, you know, as we watch customers uh, in, in the past three or four years, really wake up to this reality that that this repository of information that that they're sitting on, it's it's not a liability, but but it's actually an asset, and and they need to to treat it as such. Absolutely, and by the way, you know, even in the world of banking, even though I don't think about it. I still care if they have a good vault. <laughs> if my bank loses all my money, I'd be pretty upset. If I, you know, if I knocked on the door one day and they said, sorry, someone walked off with all your gold, I'd be pretty upset. It's just that that storage of the asset isn't the center of the universe anymore. It's still important. The center of gravity or the center of value is moved to how you can help me utilize that asset. And it's the same with storage and data. 
it's it it. I would say that that kind of leads us directly into your second prediction. You know, if if we follow that same trend of of. Uh, you know the consumerization of IT, if you will. You know, caring more about end results than 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 how we get to those results. You know, the the big catalyst for that, of course, has been cloud. And and the second prediction that we have here is the cloud is a catalyst and an accelerator. You know, what is 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 that kind of where you were headed with that, Mark? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the idea is that as organizations have begun moving to the cloud, it's interesting because I think they initially moved there driven by economics. You know, it was viewed as pay-as-you-go. It was cheaper. Uh, I don't pay for it when I'm not using it. For compute, that certainly is true. If I'm think about a, I don't know, a retail company that has lots of sales transactions at the end of the year, the end of the you know holiday season, and then in January everything slows down. Well, they might need lots of compute capacity in December, but very little in January. They don't pay for it in January. Data operates a little bit differently. All those transactions they recorded in December don't suddenly go away in January. They still have them, but the rate of growth of data may change with time. And the cloud allows you to pay for what you're using, so there's less focus on having to plan or buy ahead. So that's one reason why people went to the cloud. But what we found is that the use of cloud-based services and cloud-based infrastructure has done a couple of things. One is it's dramatically lowered the barrier to entry. Uh, if the three of us had a brilliant idea tomorrow to go start a business, 25 years ago we would have to go get funding to buy computers and put up a data center and find some you know, offices and write a bunch of code and eventually we'd have a business. Today, we could take our credit cards, throw them in a pot in the middle of the table, pay for enough uh, cloud-based services to build and deliver our service and test it out in the marketplace. Also, we get access to all of the existing software infrastructure that exists. And so the barrier to entry is very low. That's really what I think provides the catalyst for a lot more innovation in the cloud than one traditionally had in traditional enterprise software or enterprise data centers. Um, again, I don't have to spend any time thinking about establishing, setting up, configuring, provisioning systems and storage, I can get right to the heart of the place where I want to innovate, which is my service or application. And the cloud has really changed that. And it's also changed expectations because those organizations that are born in the cloud or those users who are using the cloud come back to the internal IT organization and say, that's the standard I expect you to operate with. I expect to be able to have instant self-provisioning, variable costing, uh, a rich set of platform services, high reliability, availability, et cetera. And so that has really transformed the IT organizations and the technology world dramatically. I think it's it's interesting as, as we continue along this journey that, you know, cloud started off as something that was all about cost and speed. And and at times it still retains those characteristics, but but it's it's definitely morphed into something that that Cost and speed are part of it, but that's not the value, right? The value is 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 what you're you're you you were leading into. It's the ability to offload and focus on 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 what's really important to that particular organization. I would actually argue that it's it it's startup cost or barrier to entry and speed, and that in fact we're starting to see organizations that get to scale in the public cloud recognize that in fact when they get to scale it may be less expensive to bring that 
capability back in-house once they know their workload, you know, capacity needs, and they get to scale than it is to continue to pay the rent for the public cloud. And so we've seen companies like um, Dropbox migrate from the public cloud back to their own in-house cloud-like structure, but it's not the shared public cloud. We have a whole generation of developers and a whole new paradigm for application deployment that was that grew up with the cloud. And as we see people like Dropbox and others move back into the um, their own operations or their own data center, they're bringing that with them. So we're seeing also a new paradigm in the, in the enterprise of so-called, you know, third platform applications using containers and using automated deployment and heavily DevOps focused and shared uh, distributed web scale systems and so on. And so the cloud has not only its own target, but it's also impacting the way people think about building in-house uh, infrastructure. And it's really still a work in progress. I mean, it, and we can see the evidence of that with the S3 outage recently, right? Because a lot of people were designing their platforms to be cloud-centric. And they were noticing that when you have an S3 outage, while Amazon will take care of that, uh, you know, fixing of that problem for you, you also have to deal with the implications of that being down. So you have to start thinking more about a resiliency in your design in addition to just going to the cloud as a catalyst. Yeah, I think it's also, um, it indicates something else, which is when you rely on, say, a cloud provider, um, you, you've taken a lot off your own plate in terms of responsibility for managing infrastructure and so on. But going back to the first prediction where, you know, if data is the new currency, you're still responsible for your data, even though it's now sitting in a third-party cloud infrastructure. And so from a business point of view, you, you know, the owners, the business that owns that data still has to take responsibility for ensuring its availability, ensuring that they can find it and access it and it's compliant with the rules and everything else. Uh, that, that responsibility can't be handed off to an infrastructure provider like a public cloud provider. Yeah, and, and indeed, uh, admittedly, this is becoming a more rare occurrence as, as the industry grows up a little bit more. But, you know, we've learned with real companies, right? You, you can you can go down. Outages are acceptable. Users get upset, but they'll live with it. You lose data, you're done. Exactly. Yeah, if you defer my access to the data, that's one thing. I, I'll come back in a little while and get it. But if you get if you lose it entirely and I can never get it back, that's inexcusable. Well, and there's also the concept of losing your data to the wrong hands, right? Like people get a hold of data that they shouldn't get a hold of. Yep. So there's that aspect of security, security and privacy, as well as availability and reliability. And all of those are things which the cloud vendors do their best to help with, but they don't own the responsibility in the end. That comes back to the business that's putting the data in the cloud. That's because they don't own the endpoint. They own the, the, the service. Yep, exactly. All right, so let's move into prediction number three here. We talk about uh, cloud, which is a new technology, and you predicted in number three that new technologies become standard. And we're already seeing some of this already with the SNEA standards, defining what cloud is, and also defining what things like NVMe fabrics are. So if you could tell us a little bit about your predictions about new technology becoming standard. Well, there are a couple of different, um, there are two different threads here. One of them is probably nothing that's, particularly surprising, which is things that are new 
as they get accepted and they become more ubiquitous, they just become treated as standard. I mean, you know, a good example of that is Flash. You know, not very long ago, it was the cutting edge, really unique, you know, new technology. We spent a lot of time talking about it. It's becoming the dominant form of, of storage medium in, in many applications. And we already talk about, you know, very near future, the all-flash data center. And so that's an example of something that was a specialized, unique thing not too long ago, and it's moved into the mainstream. So that's one thread. The other thread is that as technologies, particularly on the software side, become more standardized, um, it changes the way we can think about operating our businesses. So a good example of that is we've seen the movement to DevOps and something that's sometimes called compositional programming based on the idea that I'm going to put together a solution from a set of existing microservices. I'm not going to have to program, you know, assembly language code or, you know, the example I use is when I started programming longer ago than I care to admit, we had to know intimately about the registers in the CPU and today, if you're writing on any modern platform, you don't even pretty much you don't think about the CPU. It's just another you know resource. But what that what's come with that is standardization of tools, languages, a lot of open source, and that's dramatically reduced the friction for companies to work together collaboratively, to integrate businesses, and also the barrier to the movement of talent. You know, again, when I started my career an engineer would come to work in a company and spend the first six to 12 months learning how that company did things. Here are the development tools we use. Here's the methodology we use. Here's our code base. And it was a year before you could do anything productive. Today, uh, an engineer can walk into NetApp or any number of companies, and because a lot of what we do is based on open source, they can look at our code and they probably already have experience with a lot of it. Because our tools are very standardized, things like GitHub, uh, tools like Jira, they already know about. There's a very low uh, or very rapid maybe learning curve for them to onboard and become productive. And that means people move around more. So, you know, we see a lot more um, mobility of talent, which cross-pollinates ideas. And I think that is another form of catalyst, if you will, for accelerated innovation. We talked about the cloud in the last sort of the last prediction just a few years ago, the cloud was really not very many years ago. The cloud was sort of special use, exotic. You use it for things you couldn't do otherwise. It also is becoming very much the starting point standard. And the question isn't, why are you doing that in the cloud? The question is, why are you not doing that in the cloud? And that's a sign that it's really become a standard. Yeah, I, I really love the, the, the second point that you brought up uh, in, in that explanation, Mark, because it's it's the one that I personally run into the most, and, and it's the simplification of the technology stack, right? When we yeah. first invent something, it's pretty complex because it was the first take at that idea. Then you ship it and you get it in customers' hands and you just start refining on that problem. And then a couple more vendors get in there and they start refining on it with you. You get a little competition. And next thing you know, you arrive at what is basically the answer. And, it, and it's probably way less simple or way less com complicated than that first take was. But, it, but it's also much more robust and, and, and just, just a better approach all around. That's right. And, and in fact, what's, um, what's happening in the software world is what's happened in the physical world a long time ago, which is over time, both through traditional standardization processes and also through sort of ad hoc standard processes, 
we've come to a set of physical standards. So the advantage is when I go to the hardware store and I need a screw, there are a limited number of choices because the products are built with a few standard size screws. I don't have to go buy a custom screw for every time I need to fix something at home. That software used to be very much that kind of custom bespoke. Everything was a one-off. Everyone wrote their own little, you know, device drivers and what have you. But especially as we move to microservices, especially with open source, we're seeing a collection of common elements, which means it's much easier to mix and match the components to rapidly deliver new capabilities. And it's easier for an engineer to come in and get up to speed, even in building components, much faster because, you know, we're all using sort of the same system or systems uh, rather than everybody using completely disparate tools and systems. And that changes the pace of innovation dramatically because we don't have to spend all our time starting at the foundation, building everything from scratch. We can take things that exist and mash them up, to, to use a term that was popular a couple of years ago, and deliver a new, a new solution or a new service. Do you, do you think that we're getting, as an industry and as a whole, that that process is accelerating, or is it basically the same you know, 10, 12 years, however long it takes for human beings to accept the change and actually you know, move on with it? Are, are we getting better at that process, or is it still as it always was in your eyes? I, I think we're getting better at it because I think people are now um, coming up you know, into you know, gr- graduating from school, coming in, getting started, whatever, in this pe- new paradigm. And so uh, it's, it's not threatening. I, I think back a few years ago, it's a little bit different uh, analogy, but I think back a few years ago, talking to the engineers that worked for me and suggesting that maybe we should build a GUI. And their view was, no, you know, if you don't know a Unix command line, I don't respect you and you shouldn't use my product. There was a kind of almost, you know, macho kind of feeling about it. And then by the same token, you know, there was a feeling that if I don't build my own tools, I'm not a real engineer. Today, people have gotten beyond that. And they said, my goal is build a, a meaningful solution for customers, users, and if I can use pre-existing parts, that's terrific. It's sort of like, you know, building something out of Lego rather than building it out of, you know, clay, where you have to start from scratch. There's an existing set of components. I can put them together and I can build something really quick that satisfies the need as opposed to starting from scratch with all my craftsmanship and, and taking much longer and maybe ending up with the same result, but, but being late to market. Again, another, I'm going to start calling you the king of analogies. I love that one as well, because again, you know, with clay, you can get all those details because it's bespoke. You're not limited in any way, but again, going with Legos, you're right. You're going to be a little pixelated. There are some limits, but those limits give you all this standardization and speed and reliability. That's exactly right. And, and the thing that we've learned over years, is that that you know, fidelity or lack of pixelization is not worth as much as the time to market and adaptability to the customer need that you get with the, the building block approach. So along those lines uh, and, and moving on, the fourth prediction in uh, your 2017 layout here was that a wider range of dyna- or sorry, a wider dynamic range of storage and data management technologies will continue to evolve. Uh, could, could, could you elaborate a little bit on, on what, you, what you meant there and, and, and how that could build upon the standards themselves? Sure. I mean, you, you know, we've seen, obviously, I mentioned earlier the introduction of flash, solid-state storage, and that had a huge impact, has, is having a huge impact uh, in efficiency and performance and other things. We've seen 
uh, hyper-converged infrastructure, which has addressed critical needs for simplicity, uh, redu reduces the overhead for administrative uh, support, and so on. Um, we are also seeing the acceptance of what we call the um, hybrid cloud, where any given enterprise is going to have some data in their data center, some data in the public cloud, some data likely in SaaS or other service provider clouds, maybe even their own private cloud, which is distinct from their dedicated infrastructure in the traditional data center. And as that happens, there's a huge range of different storage technologies, as I mentioned, from traditional um, hybrid arrays to all-flash arrays to converged infrastructure, to hyper-converged infrastructure, to cloud. And there's also going to be the need, it's already there, to bring together and unify the management of the data. Going back to the first prediction, that's the currency. How do I find the data, manage the data, protect the data, you know, curate the data, regardless of where it is? And so uh, we see that as, you know, a in a way, the world is getting more complex. At the same time, it's getting simpler because we're building technologies to pull these things together and unify them. But the underpinnings are more complex. I think about it again sort of by analogy to a car. If you go back to a car in the 1950s, they were more complex to drive because you had to worry about, you know, the, is the distributor timing set correctly? Maybe I have to adjust the fuel mixture. Uh, you had all these controls not unlike what we had in the past in the data center to manage storage systems. Yeah. Today's car has like an accelerator pedal and a brake and maybe not even a transmission, but under the covers, it's much, much more sophisticated or one might argue complex, but all that complexity is integrated, hidden, tied together. There's a much wider range of things going on under the hood, but from the user point of view, I get better performance, better reliability, and it's easier to use. That's the goal. And so these, you know, wider dynamic range of, of storage technologies, these integrated data management technologies are r largely under the hood, giving customers more choice of performance, cost, scalability, et cetera. But if we do this the right way as an industry with broad and, and kind of unified data management solutions, this is our data fabric approach for NetApp, that will make it simple, easy for the users while they get the advantage of all of the sophistication of the technologies that's emerging. I think we'll also start to see with some of these new technologies, uh, entirely new architectures emerging. We've seen the evolution from, you know, attached storage to converged infrastructure to HCI. I think we're going to see another wave of that, which gives us the modularity, the scalability, the, customizability, if you will, of a converged infrastructure solution, while at the same time delivering the um, ease of use or simplicity that people have come to expect from HCI, from hyper-converged. But hyper-converged is kind of still a little too much of a cookie-cutter approach, while converged is very dynamic and flexible, and you can scale it to web scale, but it's not yet simple enough. Bringing those two together will have the next generation of infrastructure uh, that'll satisfy both those use cases, both those needs. So really what we're declaring here is is uh, 2017 is going to be another year where we continue to to work on this problem, but but you know with with the previous conversations in mind, 
you know, we have a direction and we know where we're headed, but but we're not at the end yet. You know, we don't know what the final solution is. This is still very much an evolving problem, you know, as we work through it with our customers. Absolutely. I mean, the, you know, we know where we're headed, which is to create this more unified uh, data fabric to help customers, you know, manage and gain insight from their data and protect their data regardless of where it exists. At the same time, we're going to continue to see innovation and new capabilities in the storage systems. But the goal is to add those new capabilities, more more dynamic range, if you will, of capabilities, but not increase the end-user complexity or the complexity of managing it. And that's going to be a journey. That's going to go on for several years. Let's talk a bit about Prediction 5 now. Prediction 5 was uh, new models take hold. So can we kind of elaborate on that and what you were thinking with, with that particular prediction? Sure. I think that here the, um, the idea is, again, as we focus increasingly on data and not just on storage, we're going to find that there's a very wide range of services that are needed, services or capabilities that are needed to come together to solve all kinds of new business problems. And what that means is that we're going to see an emergence of a new ecosystem. It's, again, and, and you call me the king of analogies. I like to use analogies because I think it helps people put this in the context of something they understand. If you think back to the early days of the personal computer, the thing that made the personal computer really successful wasn't the Intel processor. It wasn't even DOS. Uh, it was building an ecosystem of literally tens of thousands of application providers who built little pieces of a broad uh, palette of solutions that could satisfy a huge range of users. And in the storage world, we haven't really seen that until now. But we're starting to, in the cloud ecosystem, we're starting to see lots of people coming in and providing unique services on, for example, the Amazon in the Amazon marketplace, as an example, including our own solutions that are available there, uh, that's going to that we're going to continue to see that, and this means there are going to be new kind of uh, relationships and business models, and that's really one one of the things I mean by new models. When you build a platform, you you actually do several things. You create a virtuous cycle because that platform becomes something that other people can build on. In doing that, they add value to the whole platform ecosystem. Um, it's a little bit analogous to why marketplaces work so well. So if I ask you, why do you go to the shopping mall? You tell me, well, I go to the shopping mall because that's where the shopping is. That's where the stuff is I want to buy. All of it's there. And if I ask the store owner, why are you here in this shopping mall? He says, well, that's because that's where all the customers are because they all come here. And so if you were going to go start a new little store, you probably wouldn't put it out in the middle of a field somewhere. Nobody would show up. Likewise, if you wanted to go procure something, you you know, and had a range of things you were looking for, you probably wouldn't go to a specialized boutique because they wouldn't have everything you want. That same thing is true when we think about the world of storage. We've been a set of boutiques. There were different islands of storage. And as we talk about the need or the wider dynamic range of storage and the need for customers to bring all their data together in new ways, that siloed approach, those little boutiques, aren't going to be satisfying. So the new models that we're talking about are broad-based open platform models that allow multiple players, in many cases even competitors, 
to work together in a common way and provide choice and flexibility and capability to customers. At the same time, back to something we said just a minute ago about um, the new technologies and open systems and so on becoming more prevalent, those platforms also allow uh, people with those unique specialized skills to be to, accept, to access the projects that they find interesting and the people who need those skills to find the people they need to get the projects done. Again, like, kind of like a marketplace. So that's a shift for companies like NetApp and others in the storage industry who've historically looked at our little part of the world and not looked at the broader data world. We're having to open up our eyes, widen our perspective, and really look at that broader uh, world of data, regardless of where the data is stored. Yeah, I would I, I would actually expound on that. If if you know, I think that challenge is absolutely the challenge. But 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 it's it's both ways. It's a two way street. It's it's our challenge, uh, being able to see around that corner. But it's also the challenge of getting the customer to to bring us into those other parts of of their estate so that we can help them there. You know, it's it's you know, breaking out of that air quote storage team and getting to the rest of the business so we can just learn about what their problems are so we can educate them as to what our solutions can do. You're absolutely right. And it, it, it does cut both ways. And, you know, we have to we have to demonstrate to our customers and our potential customers that we are interested and willing and want to participate. And then we and then we have to get them to invite us in. So it, it, it does cut both ways. No question about it. Last, but certainly not least, um, prediction six, the consumerization of IT persists. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about what that means for IT businesses and, and what you think is happening here. Well, I think there are, I mean, consumerization has been talked about in our industry for a long, long time, um, really going back probably to the 90s as the PCs became ubiquitous, but even accelerating even more with the introduction of smartphones and the web and all of the other capabilities. What it really means, I think, is that it's created a very profound change in user expectations. Um, if I go back to, you know, the very beginning of my career, which was just prior to the PC being launched, information technology, or as they were then known, management information systems, were something that was in a separate part of the business uh, you had to literally walk up to a – first of all, you had to get a business analyst to work with you, and then you walked up to a window, and you handed your, your program in, and someone in the back, the high priest, would run the program and give you your printout. And it was really uh, – expectations were set by the IT organization, not by the users. Today, people come into our business every day, and they expect things to work the way that their iPhone works. It should be easy. It should be reliable. Uh, a, a good example of this, to put it really in sort of nitty-gritty storage details, is when you look at the old world of systems, uh, you know, storage, you actually had to identify the physical drive or storage system in order to access it. Then you get to the PC where, you know, you kind of knew there was storage inside your PC. Maybe it was one drive, maybe it was a C drive and a D drive. Uh, there's a file system. You kind of could see the structure of it. When I look at my iPhone, it's so integrated that actually I can't see the file system. The only way to access data is through the application that deals with it. So it's, it's changed the paradigm quite dramatically. And the consumer paradigm today really has little to do with storage. If, if I ask somebody, 
you know, even an IT professional who's building, you know, next generation containerized app. So where do you store your data? They're likely to say, oh, I stored it in this database. It's in Mongo or it's in, you know, MySQL. Well, wait a minute. That's, that's not where the data is stored. I'm a storage guy. I know that's not where the data is stored. But they don't. That's the way they think about it because they've abstracted that away. If I were to ask, you know, my, my dad, where is the data on your phone? He'd say, well, it's, it's here. It's inside the photo app or it's inside of, you know, my calendar app. Well, of course, it's not where the data is. It's stored in some solid state flash in the phone, but he doesn't know that and doesn't need to know that. And that's the consumerization that's shifting expectations very dramatically. It, it feeds on these other things we talked about. It's changing the way people expect to access and procure data storage, the way they expect to manage data. But it's also leading to a very, very strong focus on simplicity. And I just want to emphasize again, you know, when I talk about simplicity to our engineers, they, I don't know if I'd say they're offended, but they're almost taken aback because they realize that what they're building today is much more complex, much more sophisticated than anything they built before. And that's absolutely true. But what they, pres- what they need to present to the user is something that's much simpler. The, the iPhone, as an example, is more complex than the most complex mainframe and supercomputer systems of 20 years ago, probably of 10 years ago. But from a user point of view, it's simple. Oh, I touch that and my calendar opens. And so that's where this consumerization is becoming important and driving all of our expectations. We now have expectations that go directly from the business user into IT, not intersected and interpreted by the so-called business analyst that we had in the old MIS world. Um, It also changes expectations. I can definitely remember having conversations years ago where I would go ask somebody in the IT organization, gee, I really would like to see this kind of a report on the data. And they could honestly answer to me, no, you can't do that. We can't do that. Well, nowadays, I, I won't accept that. I know they can do it. I know they can do anything. And therefore, if I want to have a view of data or some analytics, it's, it's, they can't say they can't do it. They might say they won't. <laughs> or it might be hard because of the tools. But people now, as the end business users and even end users of products, have the expectation from their personal experience that anything is possible. And so they put much more pressure back on IT to deliver on that. It, it's also why cu- companies are starting to really think creatively about how they can use data in their business in ways in which it was not initially intended, but they can use it for other purposes. Again, from their consumer experience, that expectation has grown up, and that's what they expect. I don't know what you think about this question mark but but i actually consider that trend just to be a, a maturization of of the industry as a whole i mean computer science is modern computer science you know with processors and silica and all that jazz we're still in the first generation of this technology like the people who were there when it was invented are still alive we just haven't gotten far enough in this journey to to really know what the right answer is yet well you're right about that but there are lots of industries where that hasn't happened take for example the air, aircraft industry and airline industry, that expectations haven't got better. I mean, if, 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 what, if the consumerization of airline travel 
had happened the same way that consumerization of IT happened, I would be able to just walk into SFO, hop on a plane and go where I want without a reservation or anything else. And in fact, I could even land, you know, go places that maybe there wasn't a scheduled flight. But that didn't happen because that industry hasn't tracked this massive consumerization capability. Now, you could argue that's because it's not software-driven, but frankly, the airline industry is software-driven. It's just that the structure of that industry hasn't matured in the same way. And the same thing is just starting to happen with cars. You could argue that with things like um, these on-the-spot car rental services and now with car sharing like uh, Lyft and others, we're starting to see the consumerization of of road transportation we've had road transportation for 100 years. It took a long time to get there, and it's still not as far along as IT, the consumerization of technology as we know it, IT technology. So I do think there's something fundamentally different, and it's, it's not entirely clear to me why it took – I mean, I understand some of it was infrastructure-related, but I'm not sure why IT – what was the catalyst for IT to become so rapidly – consumerized. I think it was the web. It was partly Moore's law. It was partly the PC. But frankly, when the PC first came out, you know, consumers weren't writing software. Most consumers, I mean, I did, but I don't think of myself as a normal consumer. The people who had computers at home were playing video games, maybe doing AOL email. And that was about it. But something catalyzed a dramatic shift. Maybe it was the web. And now we've got expectations that young kids grow up and can't imagine a world where this stuff didn't exist in the easy form it is today. That's a very good point. Yeah. Uh, you, you have just changed my opinion on this matter. I, I had not considered that, but, but I mean, yeah. think, think about in, I don't know, 20 years time when we have autonomous cars and ubiquitous car sharing services like Lyft totally. and you grow up in that age, you're a teenager and your understanding of how to get from point A to point B is to summon a vehicle get in and get out. And then somebody says, oh, I remember when we used to own cars and we had to take them to the gas station and we had to go get them tuned up. They go, what are you talking about? That's insane. And they'll be right. But that is sort of the same thing when I talk to you know, teenagers now about, yeah, I used to have to go in and program the computer to get it to do it. What do you mean? You didn't just go in the app store and find the thing you like? The answer was no, that's not the way it used to work. I guess the deeper philosophical question there is, is, is it the tail wagging the dog or the, the, the dog wagging the tail? You know, what's actually driving that change? Is it that the, the consumerization of IT has now made its way out of just our little corner of the world since, since IT is now part of everything? It's, it's in the heart of every single business that it's just that same trend is now overlapping into all industries or is it the other way around where the market just said, no, we want this for everything? I think we could have a very long conversation about that. My own view is that it is a kind of natural feedback loop. And take the example of Uber or take the example of Airbnb or any number of these things. And what you find is that those companies are information companies. They're not transportation companies. They're not, you know, hotel companies. They are information companies facilitating finding a room or getting from point A to point B. And they don't own any of the assets. They don't employ all the people, but they are an information broker. And what's happened, this goes right back to full circle to prediction number one. 
those are the companies that said, wait a minute, it's the data, stupid. <laughs> it's not the hotel room. I don't need to build real estate or I don't need to own cars. It's the data. And they've created, they, for those companies, data is not just the new currency. It's the only currency for their business. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in the coming years with this sort of drive towards, you know, services, right? So as a yep. service type of mentality, because a lot of it is happening be because it's it's the ability to do it quickly, the ability to do it cheaply, and the ability to bypass regulation. And you're looking at a lot of these companies that are able to get around some things because they're able to do it without having to follow some of the same rules as the legacy services that are out there. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with those particular services like the Ubers, like the Airbnbs. Once governments and regulations start kicking in, they start making them go through the same sorts of hoops that other people have to go through. You know, what what's the next innovation from that? Well, I think that's Mark's point, right? I mean, if 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 you're if if the thing at the heart of what you're doing isn't the isn't the service, right? But but it's it's the decision making process, which I actually think you might be onto something here with with you know, it's not about getting in a car. It's about saying, hey, I need to get here at this date. Give me the four different options and I'll tell you which one I can afford. You know, if, right. if regulations change, that core problem still exists and the algorithms that are solving that problem, they're still going to exist. They're just going to use a different mechanism. Yep. So it's going to be exciting. I mean, we're, we're living in a time of very rapid, significant change. I certainly don't see that slowing down anytime soon. Um, I mean, these are a set of predictions that I think capture a lot of the factors in that change. But, you know, you can drill down in each one of these and go into more detail. You could probably add some others. Uh, these are the ones that I think are, are the, big, the, the big trends that are affecting our customers, our partners, the industry as a whole, and our, and our own company. And those will, you know, as we think about these, they'll help guide how we think about the next several years, what's our strategy, where do we need to go, how are we seeing you know, the, the world around us change. So um, I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you have a bonus prediction? A bonus prediction? Do you have a bonus prediction? I, I, I do, but I, I'm not happy about it. I don't think the Warriors are going to win. Oh. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sorry about that, but I just, it's looking that way. That prediction we will know the answer to much sooner than these. This is true. That's right. Dr. Mark Bregman, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, again, Mark, if we wanted to get in touch with you, how do we do that? Well, best way to get in touch with me is email, mark.bregman at netapp.com, or uh, my Twitter handle is at sign Dr. Mark Bregman. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, or via techontappodcast.com. If you'd like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Dr. Mark Bregman for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. What do you think about those predictions, Glenn? Oh, yeah. I think my brain's full again, man. Yeah. I need a nap. My brain gets full pretty quick. I have a tiny head. No comment. <laughs> Is it just me yeah. that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.